Let me thank Wolfgang and at the same time, in advance, my apologies as usually. I tend to be too long, but to bribe Wolfgang for his patience. <laughs> at the very end, there is a big celebration of this EGS Institute. So if you interrupt me, you cut. <laughs> every legal order or even every order of explicit social normativity has to rely on a complex network of informal rules which tell us how are we to relate to the explicit rules, how are we to apply them, to what extent are we to take them literally, how and then are we allowed, solicited even, to disregard them, to disregard them and so on. To know these unwritten rules of a society is to know the meta rules of how to apply its explicit rules, when to use them or not to use them, when to violate them, when not to use a choice which is offered. For example, often we are obliged to do something, but we have to pretend that we are doing it as a free choice. Recall the polite offer meant to be refused. It is a habit to refuse such an offer anyone who accepts it commits a vulgar blunder. The same goes for many political situations in which a choice is given on condition that you make the right choice. You are solemnly reminded that you can say no, but you are expected to reject this offer and enthusiastically say yes. With many sexual prohibitions, the situation is the opposite one. The explicit no effectively functions as an implicit injunction, do it but in a discreet way. Let me give you a political example to make this logic clear. The problem during the chaotic post-Soviet years of the Boris Yeltsin rule in Russia, I think could be located at this level. Although the legal rules were no, largely the same as under Soviet Union. What disintegrated, so my friends told me, was the complex network of implicit unwritten rules which sustained the social edifice. For example, if in the good old Soviet Union you wanted to get a better hospital treatment, a new apartment, if you have a complaint against authorities, if you were summoned to a court, and so on and so on, if you want your child to be accepted to a top school, if a factory manager needed raw materials not delivered on time by the state contractor. Everyone knew what you really had to do whom to address, whom to bribe, and so on and so on. After the collapse of the Soviet power, one of the most frustrating aspects of the daily existence of ordinary people was that these unwritten rules largely got blurred. People simply did not know what to do, how to react, how are you to relate to explicit legal regulations. Somebody told you this is prohibited. Yes, but what did it mean? Is it really prohibited? Somebody told you go and do that. Were you really allowed to do that? And so on and so on. And I think that one of the functions of the organized crime was precisely to provide a kind of ersatz, legality, and clear order. I had the misfortune, because he was patron of arch intellectual meetings, to speak with a middle-level businessman who told me, if a I have a mafia protection, 
And I need it. It's not only the day. Extort profit for me, but for example, if a contractor doesn't deliver me things or if somebody doesn't pay me, it's ridiculous even to border with police. You call your mafia protectors and they deal with eventually with the one who protects the other guy and so on. And I claim that destabilization in the last years under the Putin reign mostly amounts precisely to some kind of newly established transparency of these unwritten rules. It's not that now there is really more legality. It's simply that people are getting accustomed to new implicit rules. You again at least know whom to bribe, what you really can do, what you cannot do, and so on and so on. Now, far from introducing a kind of a total oppression where you can't even do anything, every resistance is in advance integrated, I think that on the contrary, the awareness of this complex network of unwritten, often obscene rules which sustain the explicit normativity is crucial today in two aspects. First, it accounts, I think, for maybe the crucial level at which uh, homophobia, sexism, racism, and so on operate today. It's not so much at the level of explicit rules, but precisely at the level of these implicit, obscene rules. Point two, sometimes you can violate these rules in a very productive way. I think that the awareness of this gap even opens up a whole new space of, okay, resistance. I remember, if I may boast a little bit from my own youth in ex-Yugoslavia, we had under communist elections. They were not as bad as in Soviet Union, but the result was absolutely known in advance. It wasn't as in Soviet Union, 99.9%, but 85 usually, the, the communist one. So, I was a member of a committee of a small, half-dissident, half-tolerated journal, and we thought on the election night what to do to introduce some kind of a scandal and so on. One idea was the suicide move. Let's simply protest these elections were not free. Then we got it, nothing would have happened. Probably the the issue of our journal would have been immediately confiscated and on the top of it people would laugh at us, haha, <laughs> big news, as if we didn't know it. We did something much more effective. We said, okay, you pretend elections are free. Let's just treat them as free. So we simply, on the election evening, published an, uh, an, an, uh, an, a special issue of our journal with big front page title. Latest news, it looks that communists have a chance to remain in power and so on, you know. Just the, the reaction was unbelievable. They were so mad at us. In the Central Committee, an old apparatchi called us and shouted at us, boys, no provocations like this. Then we just played idiots. We said, but what's wrong? You claim the election are free, we just treated them. And I really sympathize with this apparatchi because when we ask him, tell us what he did wrong, he wasn't able to say, don't fuck with me, you know that way. <laughs> Uh, the status of this sub-rules or meta-rules telling us how to deal with explicit rules is that, of course, of a shibboleth. The publicly non-proclaimed sign of distinction known only to those who are in. A sign whose very existence is invisible to those who are outside. So I think this is why the first rule of an egalitarian emancipatory politics should be no shibboleth, please. It is against this background that one should reread Jean-Paul Sartre's deservedly famous description, you know, from Lettre à of a waiter in 
the cafe who, with exaggerated theatricality, performs the cliched gestures of a waiter and thus plays at being a waiter in a cafe. Here is a short quote from Sartre. His movement is quick and forward, a little too precise, a little too rapid. He comes toward the patrons with a step a little too quick. He bends forward a little too eagerly. His voice, his eyes express an interest a little too solicitous for the order of the customer. Finally, there he returns, trying to imitate in his walk the inflexible stiffness of some kind of automaton. End of quote. Of course, as a Lacanian, I immediately uh, recognize how Sartre's underlying ontological thesis, the waiter in the cafe cannot be immediately a cafe waiter in the sense that this table is a table, how this thesis points towards Lacan's classic definition of a madman who is not only a beggar who thinks he is a king, but also a king who is a king, or a waiter who really thinks that he is a waiter. But nonetheless, there is a more, more, much more complexity in Sartre's description. Sartre's thesis is not simply the one about mauvaise foi, bad conscience, self-objectivization, in order to cover up the void of his or her subjectivity, a subject escapes into a firm symbolic identity. What Sartre shows is how, through the very exaggeration in his acting as a waiter, through his very over-identification with the role of the waiter, the waiter in question signals his distance from this role and thus asserts his subjectivity. Thus, this French waiter plays at being a waiter by acting like an automaton, just as the role of the waiter incidentally in the United States is almost the opposite one, to play at acting like your friend, like, hi, my name is John, how are you today, and so on. However, Sartre's point is that whatever game the waiter is called upon to play, the ultimate rule that the waiter follows is that he must break the rules, and that he must do so by following them in an exaggerated manner. That is to say, the waiter does not simply follow the unwritten rules, which would be obedience to a certain kind of tyranny. But instead, he goes overboard in following those rules. The waiter succeeds in rejecting the attempt to reduce him to nothing more than being a waiter, not by refusing the role, but by highlighting the fact that he is playing it to the point that he escapes it. The waiter does this by overdoing things, by doing too much. So I think it's crucial to get at what Sartre is aiming here to also supplement this description with its symmetrical opposite. One is truly identified with one's social role, precisely when one does not over-identify with it, when one accompanies one's playing the role following its rules with small violations or idiosyncrasies destined to signal that beneath the role I'm playing there is a real person who cannot be directly identified with the role. That's the true identification. Which is why, to let you know an obscene incident that happened to me recently, uh, one of my uh, publishers proposed me to do, you know, on the back cover of books. You usually have the description, writer here does this, that, blah, blah, and then usually they add a line or two to give the personal touch, like in her free time, Miss Heifnis likes to grow tulips and take care of her pets or whatever. So I said, okay, let's try the game here. So I proposed it, unfortunately, 
actually, as you can relate. In his free time, Professor Hizek serves pornography, serves the lab for child pornography, and teaches his son how to pull off legs from living spiders. <laughs> Just to provoke, to show that this is this precisely this false subjectivization is where you are caught into the game. Let me go now a step further. Sartre also draws attention to a crucial distinction between this kind of playing a role and a theatrical playing a role where the subject only imitates the gestures of a waiter for the amusement of spectators or as part of a stage performance. In clear opposition to the theatrical imitation, the waiter who plays being a waiter really is a waiter. As Sartre put it, the waiter realizes the condition of being a waiter, while an actor who plays a waiter on stage is unrealized in his role. In linguistic terms, one can say that what accounts for this difference is the performative status of my acts. In the case of an actor, the performative efficiency is suspended. And again, a psychotic is precisely the one who doesn't see, or rather doesn't feel, this difference. For him, both the real waiter and the actor playing being a waiter in a theater are both just playing the role. Now, I want to elaborate a little bit more because this will bring us, I think, to racism, sexism, symbolic violence. I want to elaborate the distinction between these two types of playing the role. In Lacanian, but not far, by far not only Lacanian terms, this distinction is the one between simulacrum and appearance proper. Simulacrum operates on the axis between the imaginary and the real. It tries to reproduce reality at the imaginary level to such a degree that it becomes, for our experience, indistinguishable, the reproduction from proper reality. Exemplary simulacra are not only the realistic digital recreations of reality, but also products on today's market deprived of their malignant property. Coffee without caffeine, cream without fat, beer without alcohol, which all look and taste like it without being it. According to a recent report, a slow, brief uh, slip into vulgarity, uh, I read uh, on Reuters that scientists in a laboratory in Venezuela added a further element to this series. Through genetic manipulations, so it was proudly announced, they succeeded in growing beans which, upon consumption, consumption do not generate the bad-smelling and socially embarrassing weeds. So after decaf coffee, fat-free cakes, diet cola, alcohol-free beer, free beer, we get now wheat-free beans. Okay. Okay. Now, appearance proper is, however, something entirely different. It operates at the properly symbolic level. Exemplary of symbolic appearance is, of course, the enigmatic status of what we call politeness. When, upon meeting an acquaintance, I say, glad to see you, how are you today? It is clear to both of us that, in a way, I do not mean it seriously. If my partner suspects that I am really interested in how he is. He may even be unpleasantly surprised, as though I were aiming at something too intimate, of no concern to me. However, it would nonetheless be wrong to designate my act as simply hypocritical, since, in another way, I do mean the polite exchange does establish a kind of pact between the two of us. This brings us to another possible definition of a madman, the subject who is unable to 
enter this logic of sincere lies so that when say a friend greets him nice to see you how are you he explodes are you really glad to see me or are you just pretending and it and who gave you the right to probe into my state and so on and so on such a sincere lie is appearance at its purest and contrary to the doxa it is this symbolic appearance not reality which is threatened in today's reign of simulacra Furthermore, this structure of appearance accounts for <clears throat> at least one dimension, we will see later there are other dimensions of symbolic violence. That is to say, appearance proper exerts what one usually refers to as performative power, or what Claude Lévi-Strauss called symbolic efficiency, efficacité symbolique. In a way, you are what you appear to be. That is to say, your symbolic identity determines your position in social reality. Let me explain this point with a maybe surprising reference. Okay, I could have taken... Uh, many examples from Judith Butler's work, because it's obvious that I think that here there is uh, at least a partial overlapping between my work and her work. But let me go to, for obvious reasons which concern the politically correct, incorrect borders of racism, to Simone de Beauvoir, who wrote apropos the United States racism against the blacks in the late 40s, when she for the first time visited the United States, how, quote from Beauvoir, many racists, ignoring the rigors of science, insist on declaring that even if the psychological reasons haven't been established, the fact is that blacks are inferior. You only have to travel through America to be convinced of it. End of quote. Now, it's interesting how many feminist or post-colonial anti-racist readers, commentators misunderstood here Beauvoir's point. For example, Stella Sanford, in her recent book How to Read Beauvoir, claims that, quote, nothing justifies Beauvoir's acceptance of the fact of this inferiority of the blacks with regard to whites. Brief quote from Stella Sanford. With her existentialist philosophical framework, we might rather have expected Beauvoir to talk about the interpretation of existing physiological differences in terms of inferiority and superiority, or to point out the mistake involved in the use of the value judgments inferior and superior to name alleged properties of human beings, as if to confirm a given fact. End of quote. Now, I think Sanford here missed the point. It is, of course, clear what bothers her. She is aware that Beauvoir's claim about the factual inferiority of blacks aims at something more than the simple social fact that in the United States South, of not only that time, blacks were treated as inferior by the white majority. In a way, they effectively were inferior. But Sanford's solution propelled by the care to avoid racist claims, is to relativize this inferiority into a matter of interpretation and judgment by the white racists. However, I think this sounds very politically incorrect. No, 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 blacks are not really inferior, only the white racist constructs them like this. Of course, but what I think this softening distinction misses is the truly trenchant, the most violent dimension of racism, the being of blacks, 
is a social symbolic being. What they, and so that when they are treated by whites as inferior, this in a way does make them inferior, not only at the level of interpretation, but at the level of social reality. You know, it's not only, oh, you see me as inferior if I am black. The whole social interaction makes them, in their being, inferior. To paraphrase Sartre, in these conditions, a black subject is forced to realize the condition of being black in exactly the same way that a waiter realizes the condition of being a waiter, which is why I also think that no wonder that, as many black activists learn, precisely in the way that the Sartrean waiter undermines his reduction to being a waiter by over-eagerly playing, the, following the rules, many blacks got it that one of the ways, it doesn't work always, but often, in certain conditions, to avoid, to undermine the cliché, is to do quite the opposite of the usual strategy. No, I cannot be reduced to that black cliché, I'm also a warm human person with feelings like you. But to over-eagerly, mockingly, ironically, in what Judith Butler would have called this performative imitation and so on, undermine it. I think that, on the contrary, the ideology of beneath our different social roles, we all share the same human passions and so on, is the most dangerous version of racism. Now, this then is one level of social violence, which I think it's one level, but today it acts in interaction with another level, and it's crucial to bear in mind both, which is the other level. Let me begin with a brief detour to our beloved good old Soviet Union. In Soviet times, Sersky, Sersky Institute in Moscow, I love it, was the psychiatric flagship for punitive political control. Its psychiatrists developed painful drug methods to make detainees talk and extract testimony, testimony for use in national security investigations. Underpinning the ability of psychiatrists to incarcerate people was an invented political mental disorder known as Vialotekuschaya, uh, sluggish schizophrenia, vaguely translated into English. Psychiatrists describe the disease as that of a person appearing quite normal most of the time, but who would break out from time to time with a severe case of inflexibility of convictions or nervous exhaustion brought on by his or her search for justice or a tendency to litigation or reformist delusions and so on and so on. The treatment involved intravenous injections of psychotropic drugs that were so painfully administered that patients became lost consciousness. The overriding belief, of course, was that the person had to be insane to be against communism. Okay, we can laugh at it. But is this psychiatric approach to politically problematic positions really a thing of the past? Unfortunately, no. Not only is, incidentally, I checked it up, Serbsky Institute today happily thriving in Putin's Russia, gaining even a politically privileged uh, situation, the same guys. But, as the recent incident with Mel Gibson indicates, Serbsky Institute will soon open a branch in Malibu, California. <laughs> let's look at the incident. You probably followed it in the media. On Friday, July 28th, now, barely 10 days ago, Mel Gibson, intoxic, heavily intoxicated, drove a car and was stopped by 
by the LA County Sheriffs. When arrested, he acted like a person completely out of control and started to shout at policemen, fucking Jews, the Jews are responsible for all the wars in the world. Then he asked a deputy, are you a Jew? And so on and so on. Gibson apologized, but his apology was first rejected by the Anti-Defamation League. Later, he offered a more substantial apology, announcing through a spokesman that he would undergo rehabilitation for alcohol abuse. He added, quote, hatred of any kind goes against my faith. I'm not just asking for forgiveness. So he's not just Udi Aloni, but it's a I would like to take it one step further and meet with leaders in the Jewish community with whom I can have a one-on-one -on -one discussion to discern the appropriate path of healing. Gibson said that he is called in the process of understanding where those vicious words came from during the drunken display. This time, Alexander Abraham Foxman, the director of the Anti-Defamation League, accepted his apology as sincere. Quote, Two years ago, I was told by his, Gibson's, publicist that he wants to meet with me and have an understanding. I'm still waiting. There is no cause. There is no curriculum. We need in-depth conversation. It's a therapy. And the most important step in any therapy is to admit that you have a problem, which is a step Gibson has already taken. End of quote. Now, you will say, why lose our precious time on such a vulgar incident? Nonetheless, for an observer of today's ideological trends, this event displays, I think, almost a nightmarish dimension. The mutually reinforcing hypocrisy of the two sides, the anti-Semitic Christian fundamentalists and the aggressive Zionists is breathtaking. Politically, the reconciliation between Gibson and Foxman signals an obscene pact between anti-Semitic Christian fundamentalists and aggressive Zionists, a pact whose expression is the growing support of the fundamentalists for the state of Israel. Recall, recent Robert, Robertson claimed that Sharon's, Israel's ex-Prime Minister's, Ham attack was the divine punishment for the evacuation of Gaza. What really worries me here is that Jews will pay dearly for such pacts with the devil. Can one only imagine what a boost to anti-Semitism Foxman's offer will give? Can you imagine a reaction of an ordinary guy? Uh, my God, Jews are now really totally into control. You make a little bit fun of the Jews and you are forced into treatment, psychiatric treatment and so on. Now let me analyze this a little bit more close. What underlies this reconciliation is obviously an obscene quid pro quo. Foxman's reaction to Gibson's outburst was, I think precisely, it was not too severe, too demanding. It was on the contrary that he let Gibson all too easy off the hooks. Namely, he accepted Gibson's refusal to take full personal responsibility for his anti-Semitic remarks. They were really not his own, it was pathology, some unknown force took over under the influence of alcohol and so on. However, the answer to Gibson's question, my God, where, the, where those vicious words came from, is ridiculously simple. They were simply part of his ideological identity, formed, as far as one can say, in large extent by his father, a virulently anti-Semitic uh, Australian uh, Catholic fundamentalist. So, 
What underlines Gibson's remarks is not madness, but simply a well-known ideology, anti-Semitism. Consequently, what Gibson needs is not therapy, it's not the admission that he has a problem, but the acceptance of his responsibility for his remarks. Concretely, what he has to do is to ask himself in what way his outbursts are linked to his version of Catholicism. In what way they function as its obscene underside? In other words, Gibson's hypocrisy is simply a small-scale replica of the hypocritical reaction of the Catholic Church to pedophilia flourishing in its ranks. When the Church representatives insist that these cases of pedophilia, deplorable as they are, are Church's internal problem, when they display great reluctance to collaborate with police in their investigation, they are, again, in a way, right. The pedophilia of Catholic priests is not something that concerns simply the persons who, because of accidental reasons of private history, with no relation whatsoever to the church as an institution, happen to choose the profession of a priest. Of a priest. It is, this pedophilia, a phenomenon which, I claim, concerns the Catholic Church as such. It is inscribed into its very functioning as a social symbolic institution. It does not concern the private unconscious of individuals. It concerns the unconscious of the institution itself. It is not, I'm not talking now in a Jungian way about any collective unconscious, but the set of unwritten obscene rules which supplement the explicit rules of an institution. Along these lines, to make it clear, one can imagine a straight, non-pedophiliac priest who, after years of service, gets involved in pedophilia because the very logic of the institution seduces him into it. According to some investigations by my friends in Slovenia, this effectively was the case. They claimed that they looked into the past of some priests, and again, it's not, unfortunately, they were privately pedophiliac. They were nice heterosexual guys, nothing to do with children, says that any Catholic preacher would love them, and it's the institution, literally, which redirected their interests. Such an institutional unconscious designates the obscene disavowed underside which, precisely as disavowed, sustains the public institution. In the army, this underside consists of the obscene sexualized rituals of fragging and so on, which sustain the group solidarity. What this means is that identifying oneself with this secret side is a key constituent of the very identity of a Christian priest. If a priest seriously, not just rhetorically, denounces these scandals, he thereby excludes himself from the ex- ecclesiastic community. He is no longer one of us. In exactly the same way as, for example, a citizen of a small town in the south of the United States in the late 20s, if he denounced Ku Klux Klan to the police, excluded himself from his community, betraying its fundamental solidarity. So, back to Foxman. When Foxman offered to treat Gibson's outburst as a case of individual pathology, which needs a therapeutic approach, he not only committed the same error as those who want to reduce cases of pedophilia to individual pathologies. Much worse, he contributed to the revival of the Serbsky Institute way of dealing with problematic political ideological attitudes as phenomena which call for psychiatric intervention. In the same way that the overriding belief of the Serbsky Institute 
was that a person has to be insane to be against communism. Volksmans offer implies that a person has to be insane to be anti-Semitic. Now, I'm not saying against this that it's healthy to be anti-Semitic. <laughs> what I'm saying is that this way to deal with the problem enables us to avoid the key issue, which is that precisely anti-Semitism in our Western societies was and is not an ideology displayed by insane people, but an ingredient of our of spontaneous ideological attitudes of perfectly sane people, of our ideological sanity itself. This then is where we stand today, a set choice between Gibson and Foxman, between the obscene bigotry of fundamentalist beliefs and the no less obscene disqualification of problematic beliefs as cases of insanity that need therapy. Now let me go even darker in the newly emerging ideological obscenity. The ultimate irony is that, now I pass to a more theoretical general claim, what is threatened by such disqualifications where if you have unacceptable ideological political views you are con considered as the one who needs therapy, I claim is nothing less than, what is threatened is nothing less than the notion of another human being as neighbor, neighbor in its full meaning in Jewish and also Christian legacy. The other who is to be treated psychiatrically for his opinions is deprived of the dignity of a neighbor. Now, traces of this denigration of the neighbor are also found elsewhere. Say, recently I read with horror, I must admit, Sam Harris' bestseller, End of Belief. It's a book arguing in a vulgar materialistic way about how beliefs today sustain terror that we need to break finally with religion. But it's a little bit terrifying to read in this book Harris' approach to torture, which is based on the distinction between our immediate being impressed by the suffering of others and our abstract notion of others' suffering. According to Harris, and of course this is true, it is much more difficult for us to torture a singular person in front of us than to drop a bomb from a far distance that would cause the even more, much more painful death of tens of thousands. We are thus all caught, according to Harris, in a kind of ethical illusion, parallel to perceptual illusions. The ultimate cause of these illusions is that, although our power of abstract reasoning has developed immensely, our emotional ethical responses remain conditions by hundreds of thousands of years, years old instinctual reactions of sympathy to suffering and pain that is directly witnessed. So, to put it bluntly, his idea is the following one. In the same way that our visual illusion, immediately, our visual perception tells us sun is only a small yellow object there, but through science, astronomy, and so on, we know that sun is much bigger than Earth, that cognitively we progress. We know how to suspend, correct our spontaneous perceptions, but that unfortunately, at a moral level, we, in the moral sphere, we remain at the level of the primitives who think sun is really a small ball circulating up there in the sky. Sun standing here, of course, for the suffering of thousands which we don't immediately experience in front of us. This is why shooting someone point blank is, for most of us, much more repulsive than pressing a button that will kill tens of thousands of absent persons. A quote from Harris. 
Given what many of us believe about the exigencies of our war on terrorism, the practice of torture in certain circumstances would seem to be not only permissible but necessary. Still, it does not seem any more acceptable in ethical terms than it did before. The reasons for this are, I trust, every bit as neurological as those that give rise to the moon illusion. It may be time to take out our rulers and hold them up to the sky. So you are now informed. If you feel excessive sympathy when somebody is tortured in front of you, it's a neurological mistake at the same level when you think that the uh, moon is a small object. No wonder that Harris refers to Alan Dershowitz and his legitimization of torture. Now, in order to suspend this evolutionary condition vulnerability to the physical display of others' suffering, Harris imagines an ideal truth pill, an effective torture equivalent to the decaf coffee, wind-free beans, diet coke, whatever you want. Quote, for me, the most terrifying quote from Harris' book. He imagines a drug that would deliver both the instruments of torture and the instruments of its utter concealment. In other words, in other words, decaf coke torture. The action of the pill would be to produce transitory paralysis and transitory misery of a kind that no human being would willingly submit to a second time. Imagine how we torturers would feel if after giving this pill to captive terrorists, each of the terrorists lay down for what appeared to be an hour's nap, only to arise and immediately confess everything he knows about the workings of his organization. Might we not be tempted to call it a truth pill in the end? End of quote. Now, as already said, the very first lines indicate the typically postmodern logic of chocolate laxity. The torture imagined here is like a decaf coffee. You get the result without having to suffer the unpleasant side effects of sympathy and so on. Now, my first reaction to this is, of course, again, we are back to Serbsky Institute. I read in a book on Serbsky Institute that they already had this. One of the ways to deal with dissidents was an injection, which for the out of uh, some stuff directly into your heart, which for the outside observer, it was nothing. You just dosed a little bit. But for your inner experience, it was nightmarish because the beating heartbeat was as if you felt a pressure was rendered difficult, slow, so it was as if you are a living dead, extremely nightmarish. And no wonder then they confessed whatever was necessary. There is, however, I claim, a much more disquieting prospect at work here. The proximity of the tortured subject, which causes sympathy and makes torture unacceptable, is not only a physical proximity, but at its most fundamental, the proximity of the neighbor with all the Judeo-Christian Freudian weight of this term. The proximity of something which, no matter how far away it is physically, is always by definition too close. Consequently, what Harris aims at with his imagined truth be is nothing less than the abolition of the dimension of the neighbor. The tortured subject is no longer a neighbor, but an object whose pain is neutralized, reduced to a property that has to be dealt with in a rational utilitarian calculus. So much pain is tolerable if it prevents a much greater amount of pain and so on and so on. What disappears here is the abyss of the infinity that pertains to a subject. Okay, I don't have time now to go into how this reduction of the dimension of the neighbor 
can also be approached from the one who missed your emails from Giorgio Agamben's side as, you know, on the topic of Homo Sacer. I Just to conclude, I want to now go even step further and against this background give you some thoughts of Middle East conflict. No, no, no actual politics. Thoughts. Uh, many conservative, and not only conservative, political thinkers, from Pascal to Kant, from Joseph de Maitre to Walter Benjamin, elaborated or worked on the notion of the illegitimate origins of power, of the founding crime on which states are founded, which is why one should offer to people noble lives in the guise of the heroic narratives of origin, which of course render invisible the founding crime. With regard to these ideas, it is in a way true, I claim, what was often said. The misfortune of the state of Israel is that it was established as a nation state a century or two too late, in conditions when such founding crimes are no longer acceptable. And the ultimate irony, it was the Jewish intellectual influence which contributed, which made the greatest contribution to the rise of this unacceptability. During my last visit to Israel, I was approached by an Israeli intellectual who, aware of my Palestinian sympathies, mockingly asked me, are you not ashamed to be here in Israel, in this illegal criminal state? Are you not afraid that your staying here will contaminate your leftist credentials and make you an accomplice in crime? Now, in all honesty, I have to admit that every time I enter the state of Israel, I experience a strange thrill of entering uh, some forbidden territory of illegitimate violence. Does this mean that I am secretly an anti-Semite? Maybe, but nonetheless, I think that what really disturbs me is precisely that I find myself in a stage, state which did not yet obliterate, repress into a timeless past the founding violence of its illegitimate origins. In this way, the state of Israel confronts us with the obliterated past of every state power. This, I think, accounts, maybe, at least partially, for the emblematic value of the Middle East conflict. It confronts us with the fragility and penetrability of the borders that separate illegitimate non-state power from the legitimate state power, since in the case of the state of Israel, its illegitimate origins are not yet obliterated. Their effects are fully felt today. We all know Bertolt Brecht's motto from his Beggar's Opera. What is the robbery of a bank compared to the founding of a new bank? In short, what is the robbery that violates the law compared to the much greater robbery that takes place under the legitimization of the law? One is tempted to propose a new variation of this motto. What is committing an act of terror to a state power exerting the war of terror? When the desperate Western observers wonder why the Palestinians insist in their stubborn attachment to their land, refusing to dissolve their identity in the white Arab Sea, they demand of Palestinians precisely to ignore the Israeli illegitimate state-founding violence. This is why, in a very cruelly ironic display of poetic justice, Israel is getting from the Palestinians its own message in its inverted true form. Not only with regard to the pathologically strong attachment to land, that is to say a de facto denial of the deterritorialization that allegedly characterizes today's global capitalism. I don't have time to go into it, but precisely, struggles like those of Palestinians 
ask from us to rethink this fashionable phrase, deterritorialization. Maybe we should start to return to precisely territorialization, creating liberated territories as model for the left. Now, what do I mean by this poetic justice? Imagine one were to read in today's media the following statement. Please listen carefully. Our enemies called us terrorists. People who were neither our friends nor our enemies also used this Latin name. And yet, we are not terrorists. The historical origins of the political term terror prove that it cannot be applied to a revolutionary war of liberation. Fighters for freedom must arm, otherwise they would be crushed overnight. What has a struggle for the dignity of men against oppression and subjugation to do with terrorism? End of quote. Imagine this in today's media. One would automatically attribute such a statement to some Islamic terrorist group and condemn it. However, some of you may have guessed it. The author of these words, I quoted them literally, is of course Menachem Begin. They stem from the years after World War II, immediately when Haganah was fighting the British forces in Palestine. Furthermore, it is interesting to note how, to note how in the years of the Jewish struggle against the British military in Palestine, the very term terrorist had for them a positive connotation. Again, another, even a little more provocative mental experiment. Imagine reading today in a big media a paper with the headline Letter to the Terrorists of Palestine, which would contain these sentences. I quote, My brave friends, you may not believe what I write you, for there is a lot of fertilizer in the air at the moment. But on my word as an old reporter, what I write is true. The Palestinians of America are for you. You are their champions. You are the green they wear. You are the feather in their heads. You are the first answer that makes sense to the new world. Every time you blow up an Israeli arsenal, or wreck an Israeli jail, or send an Israeli railroad sky high, or rob an Israeli bank, or let go with your guns and bombs at the Israeli betrayers and invaders of your homeland, the Palestinians of America make a little holiday in their cups. Imagine reading this. However, such an act with exactly the same headline, Letter to the Terrorists of Palestine, was published in 1948 in the U.S. newspapers written by none other than Ben Hecht, the celebrated Hollywood scenarist. All I did is, of course, I replaced Jews with Palestinians and British with Israeli. It is almost sympathetic against this background to see the first generation Israeli leaders openly confessing the fact that their claims to the land of Palestine cannot be grounded in universal justice, that we are dealing with a simple war of conquest between two groups where no mediation is possible. Here is what David Ben-Gurion wrote. Quote, everyone can see the way of the problem in the relations between Arabs and Jews. But no one sees that there is no solution to these problems. There is no solution. Here is an abyss and nothing can link its two sides. We as a people want this land to be ours. The Arabs as a people want this land to be theirs. End of quote. Now the problem with this statement today is clear. Such an exemption of ethnic conflicts for land, for moral considerations, is simply no longer acceptable. This is why the way Simon Wiesenthal himself, in his Justice Not Revenge, approaches this problem appears today problematic. Quote from Wiesenthal. One should finally take 
cognizance of the fact that one cannot found a state without curtailing the rights of those who were already settled at its territory. One should be satisfied with the fact that the violations were limited in that relatively small number of people was hurt. This is how it was when the state of Israel was founded. Eventually, the Jewish, the Jewish population lived there for a long time, while the Palestinians were, in comparison with the Jewish ones, sparsely settled and had great opportunities to withdraw. That is to say, the continually victorious state of Israel cannot forever rely on the sympathies that the world accords to victims. End of quote. We see that what Wiesenthal is advocating here is nothing else than a state-founding violence with a human face, with limited violations, incidentally as to the comparative sparsity of settlers. Uh, according to my Israeli sources, the population of the Palestinian territory in 1808, just when the mass influx of Jews started, was 25,000 Jews versus 620,000 Palestinians, so much about the density of the population. However, from today's perspective, the truly interesting part of this passage is the last sentence. It only, its only consistent reading is that now that the state of Israel is continually victorious, it no longer needs to behave like a victim, but can fully assert its force. Two, insofar as one doesn't forget, I would add that this position of power also involves new responsibilities. That is to say, the problem today is that the state of Israel, while continually victorious, still relies on the image of Jews as victims to legitimize its power politics and to denounce its critics as hidden Holocaust sympathizers and so on. Arthur Kerskian proposed a profound insight, quote, if power corrupts, the reverse is also true. Persecution corrupts the victims, though perhaps in subtler and more tragic ways. End of quote. Cecile Winter, a collaborator of Alain Badiou, recently proposed that along these lines a nice mental experiment. Imagine Israel as it is in its destiny of the last half century, but ignoring the fact that Jews came there stigmatized by the signifier of the absolute victim, and thus beyond moral reproach. What we thus get is a standard story of colonization. So, why should we, as Alain Badiou propose, proposes, abstract from the Holocaust when we judge the Israeli politics towards Palestinians? My answer, yes, we should, but not because one can compare the two, but precisely because the Holocaust was an incomparably stronger crime. I think that it is those who evoke Holocaust in this way, as legitimization of Israeli politics, they effectively manipulate it. They, they instrumentalize it for today's political uses. The very need to evoke Holocaust in defense of the Israeli acts, in a way, implies that Israel is committing such horrible crimes that only the absolute trump card of Holocaust can redeem them. Now, to establish a kind of a balance, and in no way justifying in this critique of the state of Israel even minimally any kind of anti-Semitism. I absolutely don't accept the, the logic of, you know, we can understand, we should understand some Arab or Palestinian anti-Semitic statements in that context. It's just very, I mean, how to put it? They, they don't really, that's how some Palestinians justify it. Yes, we have anti-Semitic but they don't really mean Jews. What they mean is just the state of Israel and so on. 
Well, my stupid point is they mean it, why don't they say what they mean? That is to say, I'm sorry to tell you, but in exactly the same terms, you, we all know that Hitler, when he said Jews, every Marxist will tell you he didn't really mean Jews, no? He meant capitalists or whatever, rich people, and he just used Jews as an effective metaphor, which in no way justifies it. What is wrong with the predominant Arab reaction? Recall the joke, I recall it all the, all the time, so you may be tired by it, evoked by Freud in order to render the strange logic of dreams, the borrowed kettle joke. A, I never borrowed the kettle from you. B, I returned it to you unbroken. Three, the kettle was already broken when I got it from you. Of course, such an enumeration of inconsistent arguments confirms per negationem, per negationem what it wants to deny, that I returned you a broken kettle. But does the same inconsistency not characterize the way radical Islamists respond to the Holocaust? A. Holocaust did not happen. Or it happened in a much smaller, uh, not 6 million, just 200,000, whatever. Two. It did happen, but the Jews deserved it. Three. The Jews did not deserve it, but they themselves lost the right to complain by doing to Palestinians what the Nazis do to them. I cannot quote it now, but it's incredible how sometimes in the same text you get all three. For example, as an obscene, obscene example of the ambiguity of shifting between these lines. You know how the scandal caused by the Iranian president Ahmadinejad when, in his speech in Mecca in December 2005, he implied that guilt for the Holocaust, Holocaust led European countries to support the establishment of the State of Israel. Quote, some European countries insist on saying that Hitler killed millions of innocent Jews in pharmacies, and they insist on it to the extent that if anyone proves something contrary to that, they condemn that person and throw him in jail. Although we don't accept this claim, if we suppose it is true, our question for the Europeans is, is the killing of innocent Jewish people by Hitler the reason for their support to the occupiers of Jerusalem? If the Europeans are honest, they should give some of their provinces in Europe, like in Germany, Austria or other countries, to the Zionists, and the Zionists <coughs> can establish their state in Europe. You offer part of Europe and we will support it. End of quote. I think sincerely that this statement is a mixture of the most disgusting insinuations and of a correct insight. That is to say, the disgusting part is, of course, Holocaust denial, or even more problematically, the claim that Jews deserve it. Namely, if you listen carefully, when Ahmadinejad says we don't accept this claim, he's consciously, some Iranian friends confirmed this to me, ambiguous. Which claim? The claim that Hitler killed millions of Jews, or the claim that the Jews were innocent, you know, so he oscillated. They were not killed, or maybe they were killed, but they were not innocent. But what is correct in this statement is the remind, reminder of European hypocrisy. The European manoeuvre effectively was to pay for its own guilt with another people's land. So when the Israeli government spokesman, Rana Gissin, said in response, just to remind Mr. Ahmadinejad, we've been here long before his ancestors were here. In this statement is the remind, reminder of European hypocrisy. The European manoeuvre effectively was to pay for its own guilt with another people's land. So when the Israeli government spokesman, Rana Gissin, said in response, just to remind Mr. Ahmadinejad, we've been here long before his ancestors were here. Therefore, we have a birthright to be here in the land of our forefathers and to live here. 
he evoked a historical right which, when applied universally, would lead to universal slaughter. That is to say, can one imagine a world in which ethnic groups would be all the time reminding their neighbors that we've been here before you, even if this means thousand or more years ago, and use this fact to justify their effort to seize the neighbor's land? The big mystery apropos of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict is, I think, why does it persist for so long when everybody knows the only viable solution? The withdrawal of the Israelis from the West Bank and Gaza, the establishment of a Palestinian state, as well as some kind of compromise concerning Jerusalem. Whenever the agreement seems at hand, it inexplicably withdraws. How often did it happen that when peace seemed just a matter of fighting a broker formulation for some minor statement, everything suddenly collapsed, displaying the frailty of the negotiated compromise? There is effectively something of a neurotic symptom in the Middle East conflict. Everyone sees the way to get rid of the obstacle and yet no one wants to remove, as if there is some kind of pathological libidinal profit gained gain by persisting in the deadlock. This is why the Middle East crisis is such a sensitive point for the pragmatic politics which aims at resolving problems piece by piece in a realistic mode. Here, I claim, in the Middle East, the true utopia is precisely that such a realistic approach will work. The only realistic solution is here the big one, to solve the problem at its roots. roots. Here, the old motto from the walls of Paris of 68 applies. Soyons realistes, demandons l'impossible. Only a radical gesture that has to appear impossible within the given coordinates will realistically do the job. One is really tempted to speak here of a symptomal knot, and as the story of the Gordian knot tells us, the only way to resolve such a deadlock is not to unravel the knot but to cut it. But how? Alain Badiou, since he is not here, I will now do a little bit of critique of him because I'm a warm human person and don't like to hurt people criticizing them in face. As a warm person, I wish to behind the wall. Here is it, the quote. The founding of a Zionist state from Badiou was a mixed, truly complex reality. On the one side, it is an event which is part of a larger event, the rise of great revolutionary communist socialist projects. The idea to found an entirely new society. On the other side, it is a counter-event, which is part of a larger counter-event, colonialism, the brutal conquest by the people who came from Europe of the new land where other, people, other peoples live. This creation is an extraordinary mixture, the creation of the State of Israel, of revolution and reaction, of emancipation and oppression. The Zionist state should become what it had in need of being just and new. It has to become the least racial, the least religious, and the least nationalist of states, the most universal of them all. End of quote. Now, while there, of course, is a truth in this insight, the problem remains. Can one really untie the knot in this direct way and see simply separate the two aspects in the sense of the possibility of the first one, the Zionist state without the second one. To me, frankly, it sounds a little bit too much like the legendary if answer of, I forgot his name, sorry, I think it's from the time of prohibition, of an American politician to the question, do you support the prohibition of alcohol, of wine or not? 
His answer was, if by one you mean the terrible drink which ruined thousands of families, making husbands a wreck who were beating their wives and neglecting their children, then I am fully for the prohibition. But if you mean by one the noble drink with a wonderful taste which makes every meal such a pleasure, then I am against the prohibition. <laughs> but you wish a little bit too much of this, I mean. So what is needed is perhaps more, not only drawing the line of distinction between the good and the bad side, but an authentic act of changing the very coordinates of the situation. Like when Yitzhak Rabin decided, I still remember what a shock it was, after decades of that rhetoric, we don't deal with Palestinian PLO terrorists, simply let's cut it, let's deal with it, and so on, uh, and so on. Namely, recall the story about the Caucasus Chalk Chapter, on which Brecht based one of his late plays. In the ancient times, somewhere in Caucasus, a biological mother and a stepmother appealed to the judge to decide who should get the child. The judge drew a chalk with a chalk, a circle in sand, okay, on, on stone probably, it's a little bit difficult to do, placed the baby in the middle and told the two women that the one who will be first to pull the child out of the circle will get it. When the stepmother saw that the child was, of course, screaming, getting hurt by being drawn in opposite direction, she let him go out of compassion. And, of course, the, child gave, the judge gave the child to her, claiming that she displayed true maternal love. I would like to imagine along these lines a Jerusalem chalk circle. The one who truly loves Jerusalem would rather let it go than see it torn apart by tensions. And the ultimate irony, if you know a little bit of Old Testament, is that this breath story is really a variation of that King Solomon judgment. It's as if today those, the bad mother who says cut it in two is... Uh, is predominant. That is to say, what is happening now in and around the state of Israel? I think that the tragic thing is the recasting of the conflict in the terms of the war between Israel and the entire Arab community. This recasting is, I think, fits both sides. On the one hand, it's part of probably the new Israeli strategy. If the conflict is perceived as focused on, the, on Israel's relation with Palestinians, we get the image of a strong state subduing an inferior, I mean, in the sense of uh, numbers, smaller colonized population. If, however, the conflict is recast as the conflict between the state of Israel and all other Arab states, then we get a much more heroic image of a small Israel as a victim encircled by the Arab Sea, six million against hundreds of millions. This recasting is, I think, fits both sides. On the one hand, it's part of probably the new Israeli strategy. If the conflict is perceived as focused on, the, on Israel's relation with Palestinians, we get the image of a strong state subduing an inferior, I mean, in the sense of uh, numbers, smaller colonized population. If, however, the conflict is recast as the conflict between the state of Israel and all other Arab states, then we get a much more heroic image of a small Israel as a victim encircled by the Arab Sea, six million against hundreds of millions. While it is too early to say if this recasting is part of the larger United States plan to attack militarily 
Iran or Syria, what is clear today is that this strategy, which, as already said, directly plays into the hands of the anti-Semitic Arab radicals, can dangerously backfire. Now, just a concluding remark when I come to tracing this uh, institution. Now, just a, a concluding general remark. Does this mean... My conclusion, my God, a state of emergency, a new Armageddon is approaching. As a conclusion, I think that insofar as we are here where we are, and also insofar as part of our general duty of intellectuals, it's precisely, I claim, to reject, problematize the sense of emergency which is more and more predominating today, which pervades the standard left li liberal humanitarian discourse in uh, uh, where you have all the time this pseudo-concrete reference to, to an emergency, like for example, if for me the typical thing would be to say, are you aware that for every word that I spoke here, 10 children died of hunger in Africa and so on and so on. Uh, you have also incidentally a positive aspect of this pseudo-urgency <coughs> of the liberal discourse. For example, I remember in New York entering a Starbucks coffee place and at the entrance posters were greeting customers pointing out that half or so of their profits go to the health care for the children of Guatemala from where their coffee originates. So that with every cup you drink, you so to speak save a child's life and so on and so on. I claim that there is a fundamental anti-terrorist edge to it. The under anti sorry, theoretical edge to it. <laughs> I accept I'm here for but you. Theory, terror and so on. The underlying point here is no time to reflect on it all. We have to act now. Uh, as Bill Gates recently put it, what do computers matter when millions are still unnecessarily dying of diarrhea? Through this fake sense of urgency, the post-industrial rich living in their secluded virtual world not only do not deny, not only do they not ignore the harsh reality outside their area, they actively refer to it all the time. I think that's the obscenity. You cannot play the old game, who you live up there, what about this immediate reference which of course they directly has an anti-emancipatory potential. The logic is, forget about your ideologies, capitalism, let's do something. You talk about ideology, deconstruction, but people are dying there, forget about Hegel and so on. Here I'm a Marxist. Which Marxist? The one, my favorite. There is a wonderful letter from Marx to Engels from 1870, around the time of the Paris Commune, where Marx and some others, of course, naively thought that the uh, European Revolution will explode at any moment. In this letter, which is and it's full of anxiety, you ask, my God, are they crazy? They want to start the revolution? I haven't yet finished capital, can't they? Well, that's what we need today. That is to say, when in a critical analysis of the present global constellation, one offers no clear solution, no practical advice on what to do, when one paints no light at the end of the tunnel, well aware that this light might belong to a train crashing towards us, one is usually reproached, so what should we do? Nothing, just sit and wait. I think one should gather the courage to answer, yes. There are situations when the only truly practical thing to do is to resist to engage the temptation to engage immediately. It is to wait and see by means of a patient critical analysis. 
engagement today seems to exert its pressure on us from all directions. In a well-known passage from his Existentialism in Humanism, Sartre deployed the dilemma of a young man in France in 1942, torn between the duty to help his lone ill mother and the duty to enter resistance and fight the Germans. Sartre points, of course, that there is no a priori answer to this dilemma. The young man should make a decision granted only its own abyssal freedom, assuming full responsibility for his decision. An obscene third way out of this dilemma would have been to advise the young man to tell his mother that he will join the resistance and to tell his resistant friends that he will take care of his mother, while in reality withdrawing to a secluded place and study. Now, I think there is more than cheap cynicism in this advice. It brings, to my mind at least, a well-known Soviet joke about Lenin. Under socialism, Lenin's words to young people, his answer to what they should do, learn learn and learn, were evoked all the time, displayed on all school walls, even I remember them when I was young, like, remember, learn, 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 Lenin. So here is how the joke goes. Marx, Engels and Lenin are asked what would they prefer to have, a wife or, or a mistress. As expected, Marx, rather conservative in private matters, answers a wife, while Engels, more of a bon vivant, opts for a mistress. However, to everyone's surprise, Lenin says, I would like to have both of them. My God, why is there a hidden decadent jouisseur in Lenin? No, he explains. So that one can, uh, one can say to one's wife that I'm going to my mistress and to my mistress that I have to be with my wife. Then what do you do? Okay, you get the joke. I can go to a long place and learn, learn. <laughs> is, it not, is this not exactly what Lenin did after the catastrophe of 1914, the lowest catastrophe of his life? He retired to Switzerland and there to learn, learn and learn reading Hegel's logic. We are the successor of Lenin today here in Sussex. <laughs> 